Tristan. I'm Madison. And we're back on the Equal Podcast this week talking with Yoni Kessler, a producer, musician, and a proud Las Vegas local. Stick around after the interview as we talk about our favorite Valentine's Day movies and enjoy. Kester, welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my name is Tristan. I know we've connected already. This is Kevin. Hello. He's our chief music writer, musician, and also based in Las Vegas. Indeed. Yo, my guy. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Well, did you grow up in Vegas? Have you lived there just for a few years? I, yeah, I grew up in Vegas. I did pretty much all of my schooling here. Spared like the first little bit of elementary school. My, my dad was in the military, so we moved around a little bit. But my family, we settled here in about 2007 and just kind of stuck around. And now getting into the gigging scene, have no real reason to leave. Makes sense. Which high school did you go to? I went to Palo Verde. Oh, okay, cool. Nice. That's on the west side, right? Yeah. Yeah. So have you always played music or when did you start playing music? Did you start at a young age or? Yeah. So I had the, you know, the uh, sort of typical path a lot of musicians have where I started in middle school band as a saxophonist, played throughout middle school, started taking lessons from my older brother in high school who plays professionally out in Austin, Texas, and just kind of really kept at it. You know, I didn't really enjoy anything as much as I enjoyed music. So I spent a lot of time just practicing, wasting the hours away, learning new stuff about it. And I don't really play as much anymore, but I'm thankful to have, you know, been able to do as much playing as i did you know got to travel for it a bit too which is always a good time you don't play as much saxophone anymore you don't play as much music anymore i don't play as much saxophone anymore okay i've kind of taken more to the engineering producing side of things and because in playing the saxophone has just kind of fallen a little bit on the priority list that makes sense we're not in the 80s so yeah (laughs) i was gonna say did you have like a, a saxophone hero growing up or was it just you know some classical. I, I did definitely have some heroes growing up. I always admired and I still, you know, to this day, admire Christopher Creviston. He's the saxophone professor at Arizona State University and soprano saxophonist of the Capitol Quartet. Incredible musician. I've gotten to I've taken a couple. I've taken a lesson with him. He's a great guy. Also, you know, my brother, of course, is a big inspiration of mine growing up because, you know, family and seeing family do well helps with that. Um, and on the jazz side, I've always been a big Jerry Mulligan fan. You know, I was a baritone saxophonist primarily. So Jerry Mulligan, Pepper Adams, Joe Temperley, Ronnie Cuber, Gary Smullyan, all them. I've spent many, many hours listening to every single one of their records. Okay, I have a question that goes with the saxophone thing. Because I was just talking about this with another friend of mine. And we were talking about like how with certain instruments, you can just like think and play on them and it's like it's your instrument do you still consider the saxophone that for you or is it like definitely moves to the guitar where it's like you think you play and it's like it's there it's probably it's always going to be the saxophone for me really whenever i'm hearing something in my head i'm hearing the notes on my horn and i can visualize kind of where things are with my fingers so oftentimes if i'm trying to figure something out I'll be, you know, have some people, you know, they play air guitar and they do all of that. I basically air saxophone. <laughs> so that's so cool. I love that. OK, cool. Yeah. You know, when you spend, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of hours shedding your scales, shedding patterns, learning tunes and everything, you kind of just develop that muscle memory. Um, and that sound really sticks in your head as kind of your voice. So even if I'm writing something that's going to be, you know, played on bass or played on guitar, I'm still visualizing it on my horn in the octave my horn plays. But I know it's going to be, you know, in a different register based on the instrument. That's so interesting. I love that, man. OK, sorry. I, I just it's it's such a fascinating concept to me of like what people because like when I'm writing my hands I'll automatically go to piano just because it's like been my primary for so long. Yeah. So like my hands doing like, you know, this little thing where I'm like tapping away. So it's so interesting to think that your hands are like this, just like fingering like horns in your brain, you know? I don't really play a lot of piano. I can play enough piano to hack out a chord progression and kind of get the idea across. But I still I hear everything in saxophone pitch. But coming from a, you know, a trained classical background, even though I hear it in saxophone pitch, I refer to it in concert pitch. So it's it gets a little confusing sometimes. But yeah. Oh, so it's almost like your brain has to like retranslate it. Just a bit. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in high school when I wanted to be a, a performer for a living. I spent a lot of time just on IMSLP downloading cello concertos and cello music. And to practice my reading and develop my ear, I would sight transpose cello music. Interesting. Yeah, it was a super nerdy thing. No, that totally makes sense to me, though. Like I hear it and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's actually really smart to like, because I, I do the same a little bit where like, I'll look up guitar tabs and like guitar chords for things. And it'll say like, Hey, capos on this. So I then trans like, I don't like rewrite everything. I make myself like translate it immediately. So if the capos on the second, I see a G, I know I'm playing an A and like, I just know it. The things we do to learn our craft, man. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I love that though. I love that you transposed cello music. Like that's just so, it's such a G move right there. I love it. Hey, man, what can I say? I was um, I didn't do much else in high school. So <laughs> <laughs> it's gangster. That's so gangster. Thank you. Thank That's you, so thank gangster. You. I freaking love thank it. You. Yeah, I'd always thought it was like the language of music and the dialect of instruments. But this sounds so much more intense. You're hearing in a different language almost than you have to translate. You have to transpose. I mean, as a sound engineer, do you just have to say, hold on, let me pull up my my saxophone. Let me play what's in my head. Or do you immediately go to the you know guitar piano? It's gotten to a point now where I used to have to do that. I mean, I keep a small MIDI keyboard on my desk at all times when I'm working on something that if I need to and with like a piano patch up. So if I can I can play enough piano that if I hear something, I can figure it out, play it poorly into Logic or Pro Tools and then fix up the MIDI. But I've been working a lot lately on being able to Instead of needing to use my instrument to do that, I'll have my I'll use my voice and I'll try and sing it, figure it out the best I can. And then I'll check myself after using some MIDI if I need to. That makes a lot of sense. When did you first start your work as a sound engineer? Did that come during high school? Did that come a little later? So my full intent throughout all of high school was to be a performer. I was going to go to music school, get the performance degree all the way up through a DMA in saxophone mm. and teach at university, maybe find an orchestra gig somewhere. That was my plan for the longest time. But going into college, I'd always taken lessons, but I never did competitions. I didn't do recitals, anything like that. 
growing up. So having to do those once I started college, specifically the recitals and like solo recitals, I quickly realized being center stage wasn't for me. I didn't like the attention that was on myself. I didn't like the pressure. And I sort of figured out that the thing that I really liked the most about music was making other people sound better. So just kind of along with, you know, I like to write. So I wound up in being a music student in college, switching to a composition and arranging degree. And I was at the time I was really peculiar about sounds and I didn't trust a lot of people with my babies, my music. So I was like, I should learn to record this, too. Then I started, you know, recording my friends and all my own stuff. And it just kind of spiraled into a a passion and an unhealthy addiction in some ways. I'm sure y'all understand. <laughs> Dude, what you were saying, like, I was just like, oh, that is so much a thing, I feel like, of how people get the, like, engineering and production bugs. Yeah. Is they start by saying, I don't trust anyone else to do this. I'm going to learn it so that I do it so that I'm sure it's like coming out the way I want it to come out. Yeah. And then they realize, Oh, I actually like doing this for other people too. Oh, wait, what am I going to do? Yeah. It's, it's such like a relatable thing in that sphere. Yeah. That's exactly how it was for me. But then also just realizing, you know, I like being the supporting member of the band. I don't like to be up front and center being the, do, you know, doing the engineering stuff. You're kind of doing that in a different way. You know, you're trying as when recording somebody, you're trying to find the best mics and mic positions and, you know, all sorts of techniques and other things to make them sound their best. And then in the mix, you take the best you could do on recording and then just polish it up a little bit and make them sound even better if you did a good job. Do you have any favorite engineering books that you like the most? I've actually not read a whole lot of engineering books. Oh, OK. I've read the I've read the Al Schmidt book, the. There's another book that's really popular. The Sylvia Massey one or? I haven't read the Sylvia Massey one. That's on my list. Um, I'm trying to. Th- it's really good. There's another one. Um, I'm forgetting which one it is. Okay, cool. If I remember, I'll like send you an email and you can like drop a card somewhere. But uh, the only other book that I've really like read cover to cover about recording is the. Uh, again, I forgot the exact title. It's I think it's classical recording in the Decca tradition. So it's three former Decca studio engineers going through all things recording classical music in the style of Decca. So they have an entire chapter on the tree, on different, you know, on recording different types of ensembles, the way they would do it for studio and live performance. And a lot of like science and physics behind how they position the microphones to get the sound that they want in regards to phase, dealing with rooms, how they pan the individual mics to get the imaging that they desired. It's a really, really interesting book. And it'll, it can teach anybody a lot, even if you don't record classical music. It's incredible. Right, because you just get the like theories behind like mic placement enough that you can translate into other things. Yeah, parts of the book are definitely, you know, it's how they did it. So they're telling you exactly how they did everything. And it can be that can be looked at as a how to sort of approach. But they're just generally really good concepts to take and use in other genres outside of classical. It's really interesting. That's cool. Did are you more interested in eventually getting into like that classical sphere with your like engineering and recording, or are you like, no, nah, I'm 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 sticking with like harder rock, and that's like my my favorite bread and butter. If I had a choice, I would record orchestras for the rest of my life. I, you know, being a classical musician growing up, that's just I love the music. 
there's something about the collaboration of 70 musicians in one ensemble creating this, you know, okay. harmonic, you know, palette of good sounds in a great cool. sounding room with masterful composers writing the music and masterful musicians that have spent hundreds of thousands of hours honing their craft. It's nothing quite like it, but you know, I love recording rock. I'm, I'm not doing a lot of classical right now. It's more indie folk, um, some more experimental Tame Impala kind of stuff I'm working on right now. I'm actually in a couple of days. I'm going to be going into the studio with a I don't even know what to call them. They're kind of a jazz quintet, but they have a lot of Caribbean and Latin influences with their music, too. Who is it? It's um, they're a, a local band out here. Los Platanos. Oh, I know those Platanos. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I went to college with all of them. Oh, yeah, no they're way. all my friends. So, oh, great. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're yeah. So I'm going to be working on their. I know those guys, too. You know, Amy Crosley, too, then probably. I do know Amy. Yeah, I love Amy. Amy is like one of the nicest people ever and such an amazing drummer. Like, oh, dude, her symbol work. If anyone here needs a drummer, hire Amy Crosley. She's great. <laughs> her symbol work is unmatched. Dude, Her pocket is just so deep. I talk about it like there are two take drummers who are like the drummers you it's want. Like, it's insane. Those are like the, the drummers you want in a session. And then there are one take drummers who you want, but you can't get because they're so hard to hire because they work so much. Yeah. And that's Amy Crossley. She's a one take drummer. Oh, absolutely. I haven't had a chance to get Amy into the studio in a while, but... Oh, no? Okay. I'm, I'm working on another a record for, actually, one of the guys in my production company. He's my, like, head Foley artist. A guy named Josh Greenberg out here, who's okay. a guitarist primarily, and he teaches around town, plays in zombie burlesque. Okay, same with Amy. Yeah. In this... I think they played the other night together. Right. Because, like, in whatever Amy's most recent, like, picture with all her, like, UNLV friends at Zombie Burlesque, I know Josh was in that. But we're going to be working on his debut EP. Oh, cool. And um, uh, when we were talking about who we want to bring on for that, we both definitely brought up we want to have Amy play on this. If not as a drummer, as a percussionist. Yeah. We've got a buddy that we're like trying to convince to move to Vegas who's just like Amy, one take drummer. (laughs) Oh, great. But also a behemoth of a songwriter, um, awesome guitarist probably one of the the best musicians i know his name is bennett davis um he has no music out right now and i've been hounding him to change that oh i love this okay (laughs) cool i feel like we are like two degrees from away from each other in so many ways um yeah yeah amy amy is such a good percussionist uh she's done a lot of percussion with my band jack jack Okay. And she's just so innovative and interesting and intelligent about it. Cause she has that, you know, jazz comp that like jazz composition yeah. background and having that in a drummer yeah. or a percussionist is just surreal is the best thing ever. Yeah. She's also a really good vibraphone player. Yes. If that's ever a sound you're looking for. Yeah. Yes. And marimba. Yeah. I think she like got her masters in classical percussion. Or something along those lines. So I know she can do both. Yeah, because she plays uh, with Henderson's Symphony. Or classical, too. Yeah, no, she's ridiculous. I could talk about Amy for for hours. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There's a lot of good things to say about Amy. I agree with you there. Oh, my goodness. Like, it's weird to me because I'll hear some people talk about their drummers or like how good they're doing. They'll be like, oh, I got like the best drummer here. And I'm like, they're okay. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have like an entire catalog of musicians that I know that are at that kind of same comparable level as Amy uh, that are my first call, my personal A-listers that I'll call for sessions. Yep. I totally feel that. Do you know Joe Kennedy too? 
I don't know Joe Kennedy. You don't know Joe yet? No, I don't. Okay, you should get to know Joe. He's a really good rock drummer. I would say, like, two-take drummer, so not, like, quite as, like, ridiculous as Amy, but still impeccable. But he is really adaptable. So he can play, like, any style the way you'd want the drums in that style. Okay, good to know. I'd love to continue this conversation. We should probably get back to the podcast. Yes, I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) No, no, we're going to keep that in there and then send this podcast to every single person we mentioned and have them on next. That's what we're going to (laughs) do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do like mentions of like Amy Crossley, Joe Kennedy. Joe's amazing. We just had him in a session. Well, you know, Yoni, I've talked to Kevin before. I'm like, we're going to have at least one Vegas music episode, but we're going to have multiple because there's such a tie there and there's such cool history. So we'll definitely... Have you on with some of these musicians too? I'd be happy to. I mean, all this talk has got me thinking, and this is, I hope it comes out in the right light. To be a sound engineer, do you have to be a bit of a perfectionist to just know how to get it right, know who the right people are, and just know how to tweak something and get it perfect? I wouldn't say it's a perfectionist. I'd say you need to know how to use your resources and leverage what you have at your disposal. Especially like nowadays, a lot of people are recording themselves in their basement or in a spare bedroom. And I mean, I'm in a spare bedroom right now, so I can't really I I do the same thing. But it it comes down to, I think, at the end of the day, if you want to be if you want to work with the best kind of people, you need to have a certain mindset and a certain mentality of that akin to what you would have in that sort of sphere. If you want to work with, you know, bedroom producers all the time and not saying that's a bad thing by any means, I'm not saying you're not dissing bedroom producers, but there's a certain point where, yeah, I don't really know how best to say it. It's like if you want to work with the best people, you need to understand music on a a similar wavelength that they do, whether that's having that sort of academic background and actually physically going through knowing music theory, understanding song form knowing more about the harmonic harmonic structures of things and how different dissonances and consonances work within music to be able to pick as far as chords and musicians, people who they just naturally play in that kind of way. Or also knowing if there's someone, if you don't know someone quite like that, who's close enough, but still has their own unique spin that they could come bring something totally different and totally interesting out of it. It's a lot of intuition is kind of what it is. Like if, because sometimes you don't want the most technically perfect drummer or, you know, the bassist that can be the most flashy, that has the most chops. Sometimes you really need somebody for a track that's just going to be able to just lay something down that's just just deep, that's groovy and simple. And, you know, sometimes the people that I would normally call for one gig, I wouldn't call for the next for that reason. It really just comes down to what the music needs. And having that ear, I think, is what can really separate a good sound engineer, producer, audio engineer from a great one. It's also, I feel like about enjoyment. Sorry to cut in like what the, those musicians enjoy doing. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Cause you, if you hire somebody that's normally like they, this type of stuff they normally play is very, you know, jazz inspired or they're more of a folk Americana kind of musician. If you bring them into a metal session, they're not going to have a good time and they're probably going to, not sound as great as if it's something they're familiar with. Same with if you try to get, you know, a hair metal-esque shredder to play jazz. Just not going to work out. 
Well, I was trying to make a com- a comparison between like film, you know. I feel like directors have to be exactly perfectionist, OCD, and the more I talk to, they're always like there's something I should have fixed in the last one. Do you feel some of that when a project's done of like, oh, I could have tweaked it, could have tweaked it, or are you a little better about just letting it be how it is and moving on? It's taken some time to get to it, but I try not to dwell on what I could have done. I try and of course, I'm always going to have the that, you know, that thought of I could have done this better or I should have tried this a bit differently or maybe this other person would have been a better fit for the track. But at the end of the day, I think there's so much value in moving forward and especially to not bottle yourself up in the creative process, knowing when to commit, knowing when something is good enough. And if you try to keep getting it better and better, you're just, you know, beating around the dead horse at that point. There's eventually you'll just get bottlenecked. And there's it'll just spiral down and get worse. So just kind of knowing when that balance of this is good enough or this is the best we can get at this time. Let's go. Let's keep let's keep that and keep going in a, to try and, you know, better the song, better the, you know, better the performance, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a great place to be. At. I mean, I've always heard it as the artist canvas is never finished, but sometimes they put down, you know, the paintbrush and hang it on the wall. And that's where it needs to sit for now. So. Uh, definitely a zen place to be (laughs) yeah i mean i've worked with a lot of artists that you know every creative person is going to be their biggest critic you know you're always going to say i could have done this better i'm not good enough at this but i can you know i'm just going to do it and hope for the best a lot of times the best take that i've gotten from an artist was one of their least favorites you know they didn't they didn't think what they did was very good, but from an outside perspective, because I try looking at everything from a totally unbiased outside perspective of just I want this to be good, no matter what the, you know, regardless of who is in the room. You know, I want whoever's going to be listening to this to love this. Everything a lot, a lot of times like, yeah, it's sometimes the artist's least favorite thing winds up being the best part of the performance or the best take that they did. And it can take a little bit for them to sometimes realize that. And even sometimes they don't and we can't use it because, you know, when you're working on someone else's music, you're providing a service to them and you need to make sure that they're happy regardless of what it is. But yeah, the art of learning to commit is a uh, it's a hard one that I think it's the most important, though. You can know everything about mixing and recording in the world, but if you can't move forward, you're just going to be stuck in this endless loop of trying to get it right, even when it already might be right. Yeah, that doubt is like killing it. Yeah. Thing. Well, for the uninitiated, myself included, can you walk us through the Sparknotes version of when you first get involved to a finished track or album? Sure. I'm going to have to kind of assume a couple of things about it just because that process, just like with every, you know, with a film is going to be so different from project to project. I'll use a, a record I'm working on right now. Another artist, another really good friend of mine, like an indie folk artist. Shout out. Her artist name is Jubilee, spelled J-O-O-B-I-L-E-E. A good friend of mine. We started working on a track together a while back and never finished it. But a couple months ago, she reached out to me and was like, hey, I have a couple more songs that I want to work on. I like your work. Can we, you know, let's can we can you produce my EP? And it kind of starts that way. Um Going through it, depending on the, I guess, the musical knowledge of the um, of the artist, 
and their intent with the project. This specific project, the intent was to record everything and have a full band um, tracked in the studio for at least a handful of the songs. And a couple others are going to be more we can do at home. We don't need to bring in all the musicians to do everything. We can just maybe, maybe bring in one or two and kind of go from there. In this case, I know that the musicians that I'm going to have to have are going to need to be able to read charts. So I'll listen to the demos that the artist sends me and I'll if they don't have chords already figured out, like if they don't know the chords of their own song, I would have to transcribe that and write out a little basic chart outlining the form of the song with the chord progression and maybe have the melody also transcribed so they can see what's going on if they can read sheet music, which in this case, all a lot of the cats that I call are you know people I met in college. So they can read charts, they can read notation, and they understand how to read chord changes. So if they have the chords, that makes my life a lot easier. I just write what they gave me, maybe figure out the melody and write out a basic form, clean things up a little bit, talk things through with the artist to see maybe there's something a little crunchy there that might not you know, work as well in with you know, a guitar player than it would on piano, which he's playing everything on piano or ukulele. And I'll write out a couple of ideas, maybe program a quick sketch, send that to her, get approval. And then if that's approved, great. We make the change. I finish the charts. I format them for a recording session. How I how in the easiest way possible to be read down in the studio. And if we have time and I've already picked out the musicians, I'll try and send the charts out as quick as possible so they can start getting a bearing on it, along with the cop with like with whatever demo she sent me or whatever demo we have. And that's pretty much it. Move on to the next song, rinse, repeat, go into the studio. Um, we've already talked about the kind of sounds that shoot that the artist wants beforehand in a perfect world. We've already kind of figured that out. I can put a plan together, figure out what mics I'm going to use, set up my Pro Tools session, go into the studio, get everything set, get all the musicians in the room, make sure everything sounds good and then just record the record. And that's kind of a best case scenario, I would like to say. Not all the time are you going to have somebody that you're working with who's going to know what they want, um, be open to new ideas, and then be adaptable in case things might not be able to be the way they originally envisioned, just for the sake of making it easier on musicians in the room. Once everything's recorded, you know, just simple basic editing. Um, with a full band, I try to track everything with a click, so editing is really simple. I pick one section, edit the entire band, all of those takes together. Make sure it sounds good. All the fades are clean and easy. Um, send that rough demo to the artist again for approval. Make sure she likes what she's hearing. Then move on to the mix. And yeah, not as cliff notes as cliff notes can be, but it's such an involved process that it, it there really is no like one size fits all to describe that. That was cliff notes, I felt like. Okay. I think you did a great job. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I mean, yeah, I understood it. And I think I understand now how much more intensive it is yeah. Then I would have imagined, you know, just you have to have your finger on the pulse. You have to know the musicians. You got to know the styles. You have to know the how to transcribe the software, the mic. There's so many ways to approach doing this that this is just my preferred method. There's, you know, I know a handful of other producers that don't have any, they don't understand music theory at all. They have no idea what I'm saying when I'm, t they know like basic chords and what a key is, but they don't understand you know, harmonic, you know, upper harmonic structure and how to pro how to like voice lead chords in a technical sense. They know it all by ear and by intuition. So their process would be very different from mine. And a lot of music, if you if you're hiring in musicians, 
a lot of times if you don't have charts for them, they'll make their own quick chart during the session while they're, they're, you're talking it through to them. I, I was about to say with that, like when we do it, when we, when we're working with like Joe or Amy or someone, we aren't giving them charts like any of the time. We just send it to them and like, Hey, we know you're phenomenal. Come up with what you want to have on this track. And sometimes they'll do any work beforehand to like listen to it and write some stuff down. And sometimes they won't. And they'll just come to a session and be like, okay, I'm, I'm writing this right now and I'm playing it. And you're like, that's how it's going to be. Yeah. It, it, it's again, it's just a different workflow for everybody. I personally also just enjoy the process of making charts. I think it's kind of cathartic. So I'll go in and do all that extra work because not because I have to, but more because I want to. And when I'm writing out a chart for musicians, I'm not going to be writing in every single note for them to play. If you're not making charts often slash notation is a little bit of a foreign kind of concept. So a lot of times when you're writing charts for session musicians, because I'm a saxophonist, I have no idea how to play the drums. I'm not a bass player. I can't play guitar to save my life. I'm not going to try to tell them what to play. I'll just give them you know, the chord, like uh, chord changes above the staff. So just text iterating what the chord is. And within the bar, there's going to, if it's in four, four times, so common time, there's just going to be four slashes within that bar and however many other bars are going through and a style indicator. So if it's an indie funk or indie pop chart, I'll just put as like bold text above indie pop and they'll know what to do. And we just kind of go, f- go from there. I go a little bit more in depth with certain hits. So if there's specific rhythms that I want them to play in a certain bar for a certain effect, or if I want them to, or I want the musicians all to play the same thing underneath a vocal, as an example, there's additional notation that can do that, but that's not a required thing at all. And that's something that you can discuss with them in the studio and they can write in their own parts. And some people might say I'm a little bit too involved in that, but Honestly, the amount of musicians that I know that prefer to have that information going in so they can just read it and be done and not have to figure as much out. They can just do their thing the best they can. It's more than, you know, the latter of who want less info to just figure it out themselves. But that's just my it's my it's my personal approach, the way I like to do it. And it's kind of academic and I'm not as an academic musician. I'm not going to lie about that. But yeah, it is one approach of many. And I think some things. I mean, I know musicians that love having more musicians that love having charts handed to them at sessions than not. But again, it, it also depends on the musician wildly. And I'll I'll discuss with them, too. Like, do you want a chart? Do you want to just come in and figure it out? How would you prefer to do this? Has this led you to film or how did you first get interested in film? Were you kind of feeling like you knew this well enough? You're like, I want to try in different areas or how did that first come about? So I actually wanted to get in film from the beginning. When I was figuring out that I wanted to do the audio engineer thing, I did it with the guise of wanting to be a film composer. I wanted to write music for film. I'm you know, inspired by John Williams, Hans Zimmer, Michelle Legrand, more modern composers also for video games like Lena Rain and Austin Winery are big inspirations of mine. I wanted to do that. <laughs> so at least at UNLV, there's a pretty big divide between the, all of the different schools in the College of Fine Arts. So. I spent a lot of time in the beginning just learning about, you know, all the music stuff and film, whatever I could digest from YouTube and find online. But I eventually, like during the pandemic, actually wound up connecting with a student director named Merlana O'Keefe, who's doing some 
incredible work. Uh, we just finished a film up of hers called Astronomy Cops, which you can watch on YouTube. And once I started doing film, I just realized that this is also just something I love and I really en- want to do more of this. But it's in the more recent years that all of the post-production stuff really kind of came to my attention. And I really started wanting to do more of it. I love that. Uh, wh- with that, what would you say are your like top favorite films in terms of just like favorites and which ones are your favorites in terms of like the musical qualities? Ooh, that's a deep question. <laughs> if it's too deep, I, I, I apologize. It's not too deep. I just suck at remembering names of things. Oh, I understand that. Yeah. So like, I'll know what I like, but I just forget the name. Some very obvious ones. You know, I grew up a Disney Pixar kid, so I have a very soft spot for, you know, all the older, you know, Disney Pixar movies like Aladdin and the Lion King are two of my favorite movies ever. You know, I love Lord of the Rings. I actually have a joke with a friend who's likes Lord of the Rings more than I do that it's a shit movie, even though it's not. I just say that to tick her off. Um, <laughs> I so much. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, and I have a very soft spot for Harry Potter. As far as scores, specifically all the John Williams Harry Potter scores. So I think that was Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone. Those were John Williams. Then he kind of left the franchise, but his music stayed. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean, all the old James Bond stuff. I got t- turned on to Lawrence of Arabia pretty recently, too, by... Actually, a film I'm working on right now, which we might... I mentioned it to you, um, Tristan, in the initial form about this, but that's a fantastic movie and the score is beautiful. No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, I hope that... Sorry for the film people, all the basic answers, but... (laughs) Yeah, I like it too because it kind of gives me a taste because a lot of those movies you were talking about have more of like an orchestral bend in terms of score too. Uh, you know, not as much doing that like modern thing like, uh, oh man, why am I forgetting the guy from Nine Inch Nails? Is it Trent Reznor? Trent Reznor! Yes! Oh my goodness. She's gonna kill me for that if she listens to this. Good luck to you, man. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're, it's not as much that Trent Reznor vibe, though. It's more that like classical, like John Williams type vibe that you, that you want to go for personally. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have my bias, of course. I love classical music and I, I listen to modern composers all the time as well, but there's definitely a special place in my heart for the more heavily synthesized and creative music approaches, you know, a la Blade Runner, Tron, things like that, where it's much more focused on deep synths and creative sound design and less the, you know, the sound of the orchestra that we're also, you know, deeply familiar with. Dude, that Tron Legacy freaking soundtrack, though. That's so good. I still listen to it so good. So w- with the short film underneath the one you just mentioned, where did you get the idea from it? What's the music like? What have you pulled from? You said Lawrence of Arabia in order to do the post-production for this. Yeah. So I'm actually not the composer on this one within my, you know, I, I have a production company that we're fairly new, you know, started last six months that we're trying to get, and this is our first like big project. When talking to Chase, the director, Chase Korzep, he the inspiration he wanted for the music specifically was that kind of classic cinema. Lawrence of Arabia was the movie he mentioned, which if you listen to the soundtrack, it's very much like the studio orchestra kind of sound. Very, very romantic as far as not romantic music, but the romantic period of music. So very, very Chopin, very list. Beethoven starts it, so... 
Yeah, yeah, Chopin, Liszt, Schubert, that kind of stuff. And along with, you know, modern, like, you know, of course, Hans Zimmer, Williams, that sort of era, like the golden era of cinema kind of sound where and alongside with that, you know, being, you know, the entire film, it's based around treasure hunters in the Middle East. You know, trying to find the treasure underneath the sand is kind of the the shtick with it. So my the composer on that's actually my really good buddy, I'm Ricardo Arana, who actually would also be a great person to have on this podcast. I can connect you to another day. But he's been yeah, he's my like in staff composer with my with Desert Sands Productions, my little company. And his whole approach with it, he's doing kind of the hybrid thing. So he's been doing a lot of the a lot of the orchestration with that classic cinema in mind, but he's doing also some light synth undertones. And we're heavily featuring the Duke on this soundtrack as well, which is in a, I believe it's an, I want to say Armenian traditional flute. I might be totally wrong. I know it's one of those kind of traditional, like, um, ethnic flutes um, that, you know, one of my really good buddies just happens to play. So we're going to be featuring him very heavily on the soundtrack. And I'm doing more of the, I'm going to be doing the final sound mix of that. And I've also been, been doing a lot of Foley for that as well. We've been, we actually, we're wrapping up Foley, hopefully on Tuesday. Is this your first time doing Foley? Have you done it before? I've done some Foley in college. I like briefly found my way into the film department at UNLV. Oh, cool. And got connected with their new to, new to UNLV professor, Tom Bajelic, who is, you know, he was the sound designer on Saw. He did the entire Saw franchise. So he was kind of actually my gateway drug into doing all the post stuff. I learned fully from him. He also taught me mixing in the kind of five one sphere for film and not for music. And yeah, just in some like class projects we did, they had like a little Foley studio set up with a Sennheiser MKH nine. Well, I forgot what the shotgun mic is, but he has a little setup in a side room where we did some Foley under his guidance and just kind of took what we did in class and are now applying it to underneath which is, it's been, it's been really fun. <laughs> I was talking to Josh yesterday when we were finishing up Foley, because we, there's a big scene towards the end of the movie where uh, Erdin, the, one of the protagonists, gets kind of betrayed by his colleague who burns his father's research journal in a fire, and they jump into River Rapids, so we had to kind of figure out and recreate the sound of struggling and fighting in water. So I was like, it's the most fun job ever. We're just playing around with water and recording it. <laughs> We're just like make we're just like splish splashing in the water and recording it, but like in the context of the film, it like makes a lot of sense and it works. That's probably my favorite behind the scenes videos yeah. to watch. All my Instagram, <laughs> I'm always sending them to my buddy who we're making some stuff. I'm like, just watch this. There's celery involved. Yeah. There's lettuce for you know alien and things like that. It's blown my mind to see the behind the scenes of all the music they use. Yeah, no, Foley is a lot of fun. If I wasn't doing a lot more music stuff too, along with working on records and stuff, I'd I'd want to do more Foley because it's it's just really fun. You seem to like be doing like a thousand things, and they're all super interesting. And I feel like it's like we can have an hour to talk about each of the passions you're into. What if so? If you could choose like ideal life, would it just still be back to that like recording orchestras, or is there like? As an aspect that you're now like coming to love where you're like, if I could choose one of these things, if I had to specialize, if I had to specialize, I would choose this thing. If I had to choose one thing, it would be working with bands, you know, recording music. I love being in the studio. I just love 
everything that has to do with sound. I'm really fascinated by how sound is created, how different instruments mechanically work to produce sounds, the art of capturing it and how, you know, messing with microphones and just trying different things out based on how the room is reacting. I'm trying to the physics of it also interests me, even though I suck at physics. I'm trying to learn more because I want to understand it more to make better informed decisions. And honestly, I just my passion is just audio is just sound. doesn't matter what it is with it. I'm happy to do it. And I'm going to as much as I'd love to keep doing everything. I within the sphere of Desert Sands of my production company, I want to focus more on the mixing and the recording aspects and find you know other people that can handle the Foley engineering, that can handle Foley artistry, and really just... I kind of like just sitting in Pro Tools and making things sound good. I think it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. I love that. Yeah, it doesn't matter how it comes, I just, I just think it's fun. As far as your goals for 5-10 years, would you like to stay in Vegas and have your production company stay there, moving on, doing everything from UNLV, plus some Hollywood projects? Do you want to move to LA or New York at some point? What's your hope there? So I'm I love my city. I'm very much a proud Vegas resident, especially with everything that's gone on in the past, you know, five years. You know, the big shooting at the MGM, the nights coming in and developing a culture around the city. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm my, my plan is fully to stay in Vegas. Desert Sands was founded by a bunch of Vegas locals to be a Vegas based company to serve the Vegas scene. But we also want to branch out into Hollywood and to the, work with you know people from around the world on whatever project and to kind of elevate our local scene here. Something I, I want to, there's so much incredible talent in this city that's just not getting the spotlight it deserves. And something I, I want to help bring that to a and kind of put a, a higher pedestal for Vegas and the greater music scene. The ultimate goal is I want, and this is my unrealistic goal that I want to do anyway. I want to open up the next capital, the next Abbey Road. I want to build the next, you know, you know, Titan Studio. It'll be both, you know, music studio and post house because that's another part of what I love. So we'll have our Foley room, we'll have our ADR studio, we'll have a couple mix rooms, and we'll have a couple other just big recording rooms. One that can do orchestras, one that can, a couple that can do rock bands, and like some smaller producer suites that you know writers can come and make music or. People that are just working on stuff, they can come have a better treated space to work with, with a, you know, with a solid team behind their back. I wear myself out here with other creatives in L.A. and people in movies. I'm like five hours up the road, wide open spaces, the perfect deserts and so many talented people who are just anxiously working and busy and creative and doing things who don't want to come into, you know, four or five hours worth of traffic every day. And I really hope. To your point, I hope that dream becomes a reality because we thought it was the Hyperloop for a while. Forget that. But I just <laughs> think there's so much going on that it should be like, not mini Hollywood. It should be its own thing because it always has been. But it should be a new hub that people turn to and they say, Vegas. Oh my gosh, they recorded this there. They recorded that there. They mastered that. And I really hope that picks up. It's slowly becoming that. I think it's Warner and Paramount. They're building sound stages out here. Yeah, they just passed a lot of incentives for taxes based on, you know, for the film industry specifically. I don't know all the details. I need to read into it a little bit more. But there's been also just a mass migration of creatives from L.A. to Vegas in the past couple of years. A lot of it's for cost. It's much cheaper to live in Vegas than it is to live in L.A. And also just the change of scenery and the growing scene. 
Like I tell all of my friends from New York, from LA, from everywhere else. Now is the best time to come to Vegas. Cause this, the entire creative space and scene is just exploding. And I'm sure, you know, Kevin, you've noticed that too. In more oh. recent years, the scene is just, it's getting crazy. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I feel like this is something that can be talked about for hours too. Oh, yeah. Just, just this topic. Um, but I feel like we, we, for the longest time, Vegas was hard rock. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And you still see that in the way that venues treat artists. Like there's so, there's so much more booking in the hard rocks scene as far yeah. as like gigging than basically anything else, unless you're doing like cover bands on the strip. Here. Yeah. But seeing the audiences and like what people are turning out to like hip hop shows right now are massive in the underground space here in Vegas. Yeah. EDM massive. Like the crowds that come out for those shows are huge. Just like the biggest crowds you'll get for like a local scene thing. Yeah. And I think that speaks to this like growing urge to be like part of like the new and like everyone's pushing things, pushing boundaries, like trying to find new places to get to. Yeah. There's been a big explosion also in the jazz scene. I'm not sure if you've caught on to that too. You know, joints like fat cat opening up, we had the Gambit for a while, but unfortunately they shut down. I know Max and Jazz is another one. The Griffin, I, I don't know if they still do it, but they did a jazz jam weekly at one point. And I know they're like no, more a hard rock venue, but they had, you know, live jazz once a week for a while. Right. Um, and, and like Red Dwarf having uh, Los Platanos. Yeah, Red Dwarf and their also, you know, sister company, Fat Cat. <laughs> Which if you haven't been to Fat Cat, that's a really fun to bar too. It's right across the street from the Mob Museum. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. They're speakeasy too. The underground of the Mob Museum, they do period accurate jazz Friday, Sunday nights, Friday through Sunday nights. So go, you go to the speakeasy at 10 p.m., and there is a band full of some of the best cats in town doing covers in the style of 30s jazz or 40s oh, jazz. Oh, that's so cool. Dude, it's Dude, awesome. we should, we, we, need to, we need to connect. Yeah. And here's how we need to connect like, like outside of electronically, we yeah. need to get together go to some jazz shows together. Dude. I am yeah. so down to be better connected with the jazz scene. Cause I'm really connected with like the indie singer songwriter scene in town. And I'm really connected with the hip hop scene. Okay. Um, and like decently with the hard rock, like I'm not super deep as like some of my friends are, Yeah. but I want to get more connected with the jazz scene. And it sounds like you just, you have that on lock right now. And I want to, I want to get in that. Yeah. I'm i I'm decently connected. You know, all the jazz musicians also play in all the shows around town. Right. And a lot of them are also playing in other bands. Like you're in the hard rock scene. You're you hip to post NC. I, I know post NC, but yeah, all those cats are jazz musicians. Yeah. I, I, I it's not quite my vibe just cause they're more in that like maximalist style. Yeah. And I'm very much a minimalist. Yeah. Gotcha. And so it's a little harder for me to like, like I hear what they're doing and I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. I know why it's interesting. I see that they're talented, but I'm just so much a minimalist that I hear it. And I'm like, like, I know you're like listening to each other. I know you're good, but like, I, I want some more space. You know, yeah, no, they're just the easiest example I could think of. Cause I'm not super antiquated into your scenes either. Right. I'm much more in the Vegas jazz scene. Also the Vegas classical scene. I'm pretty involved in. 
I didn't I, like, I know some people in the Vegas classical scene, but I didn't know it was like, like I know Henderson symphony. I know, um, my friend Candace plays in like a quartet that's really well regarded here. Yeah. Um, but I'm not super like informed on the Vegas classical scene. I didn't know it was like really popping. It's slowly developing. Okay. There's been a couple of other community orchestras that have opened up. Nothing as quite professional as the you know the the Philharmonic at the Smith Center. But there's a couple of opera companies that have been popping up too. Vegas City Opera is one of them. Opera Las Vegas is another. There is one more that I'm blanking on the name of, but I know a lot of opera singers and they're doing operas slowly building and developing here as is musical theater also kind yeah. of coming up like um, Oh yeah, well, especially with like the screamed musical blowing up on TikTok. Yeah. And becoming this like huge phenomenon. Yeah. You know? I still need to go see Screamed. That's been on my list to see it. I've, I've been meaning to go see it. I guess. Yeah. I, I should have seen it by now too. Cause my friend Harley plays bass for it. And she's like, I can get you in. But then she's like, actually I can't get you in. Cause the tickets are so sold out that it's ridiculous. And I'm like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm like kind of friends with Coco Rigby. I think she headlines. She's Katie's understudy. So she okay. plays, she like has the lead role on every other night or on the off nights, I think. And I bet she's incredible. She's a singer that you need to know. The yeah. stage presence on that woman and just her voice is astounding. I, I'm sure she could do whatever the hell she wanted to and be successful. She's great. Right. I love chameleons like that who can just yeah. like adapt. Yeah. Uh, I want to get connected with that opera scene too. I need to just like reach out to him and be like, hey, let me know what's going on because I want to be part of it and I want. I want to have like more opera singing on like as per samples on hip hop records. Cause I've yeah. done it before and I freaking love it, but I had to use like me faking opera <laughs> and like old samples from like when it, when it's still public domain, like yeah. I have this super old sample of La Donna Mobile, uh, yeah. that aria yeah. that I used for a, a hip hop song I put out, but I had to like, I had to stretch to even get anything just cause it's, yeah. it's hard to like, get an opera singer in a studio they don't think about that yeah and if you're gonna do stuff like opera you need a room that'll because opera the operatic voice in a non you know in a room that's not suited for that is gonna be so hard to record yeah you don't it's, want it as dead because yeah. you want some of that resonance that comes from the opera singer yeah like we can we can talk about that more another time we definitely have to connect after this we, we need to connect more I, that's yeah. what i'm learning from this there's too yeah. much fun i feel like going on here yeah a lot of things happening yeah. Vegas is great. This is great. No, I was going to say, we've talked about so much today and we do have to let you go. I know we're <laughs> nearing the hour mark, but I hope you two get connected. Excited to hear about those production houses and uh, you're wrapping up underneath end of this month. So yeah, that'll be getting wrapped soon. And hopefully also it was, you know, it was approved for distribution. So underneath is going to be streamable on Roku. Come hopefully, I want to say late February or March. I'm not sure exactly when, but I can let you know whenever that's put out. It's not often that these small projects get picked up and then anyone can watch it with a Roku. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited. No pressure at all for us, but <laughs> that's such good news for your company too. Because like someone's yeah. just streaming on Roku, like some like person doing a film, and then they're like, "Wow, the sound production sounds awesome on this. I wonder who did it." And then they hit yeah. you guys up, and you have another like client working with you. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm. Uh... I count my blessings every single day because things are just going so well with, you know, Desert Sands. You know, the crew I have is great. We have a lot of support from our local communities here, too. And it's 
things are just looking good in the Vegas, you know, film scene. Things are looking up for our city and I'm really excited about it. Well, it sounds sounds like they are. And we'll, of course, link everything in our podcast notes and on our website from the short film and where to watch it to your work to Desert Sands, as well as your social media. And thanks again for coming on, Yoni. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Madison, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. I'm actually spending Valentine's Day in the desert by myself, (laughs) solo. (laughs) Just the way they intended. (laughs) Just the way God intended, yeah. Well, I want to talk about our favorite movies and shows for Valentine's Day, but it doesn't have to be just about the holiday. I think it can be about love or the lack of love, (laughs) about what Valentine's Day means. And at least for me, Valentine's Day was always about the missed connection, you know, whether it be breaking up beforehand or dating somebody, but things got rocky around Valentine's. I don't know. Anyways, Valentine's Day is now recently much better for me, which is great, but it's always been a great time for me to watch movies about missed connections. Yeah. So for our list, I'm going to start us off. We've got three apiece. Mine first is Begin Again with Keira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. Have you ever I've seen this never, movie? No, I've never seen this one. Okay, so <laughs> this is an interesting one because I think because I love music, I give a little extra padding for movies that are maybe not the best. So it's directed mm-hmm. by John Carney, who also did Once, that then became a stage production. And then he did Sing Street, which is one of my favorite movies. Anyways, he just does a whole bunch of music movies. Flora came out this year, Flora and Son. He helped direct some episodes of Modern Love. Anyway, this is a great story with Mark Ruffalo and Kiara Knightley and Adam Levine from Rune 5. Kiara Adam Knightley. Levine's in it? Huh? He and John Carney are best buds. Huh. So he always okay. lends his song. So this also, if you want to listen to an amazing Adam Levine or Rune 5 song, you got to listen to Begin Again. You got to watch Begin Again. Go find the song. They took it off Spotify. Anyways. It's just a great movie. It's a little bit of Kieran Knightley and Mark Ruffalo kind of falling in love while making yeah. music, but then never actually getting together by the end. They both realize they're at a little different points in life. He's recently divorced. She's now broken up with Adam Levine, and it just becomes kind of a congenial, you know, a, a friendship, love, and appreciation yeah. for each other while realizing now's not the time. And it just it hits it hits every time. Interesting. It's funny now, like, and this on this end of the world where Mark Ruffalo is so associated with like the Hulk and Marvel with me, to like go back and watch him in like you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or these older these older movies where he's like this heartthrob of I'm like, wait, what? You came from <laughs> like a different part of Hollywood and then became the Hulk. Very funny. Yeah, he was just on Smartless recently, and it's fun to hear of like Mark Ruffalo, the struggling Broadway actor, or Mark Ruffalo yeah. trying out for all these big serious roles. Anyway, it's a good one. Okay, well, my first pick is Palm Springs, which is the, the movie with uh, Andy Samberg um, and Kristen Milioti, who came out in the uh, middle of the pandemic. This one was one of my absolute favorite movies of the pandemic it's you know they're they're stuck in a groundhog's day situation where they're just in an infinite day at a at a wedding in palm springs 
So it was relatable. And, no, absolutely. I think that's why those 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 sort of movies like really took off during the pandemic was because the, the pandemic felt like an infinite day where it was just yep. the same day over and over again. I really like this this one because I feel like when you can just feel that there's chemistry between your two leads on screen, like it just helps sell the story so well. And you know, there's kind of there's an absolute playfulness about the movie, but there's kind of an, an existential undertone underneath and throughout it all that I really like. And I'm not going to lie to you. I, you know, making these, this list was, was difficult for me because I'm rom-coms and like love stories are not my favorite kind of movies. Cause I'm just kind of inherently skeptical of the way of the way <laughs> stories portray love. Yeah. And, but this one where two people get stuck in a time loop and spend million, you know, thousands of years with each other millions of days is just like it's just kind of magical and they've got great on-screen chemistry and it's just funny and i just i wouldn't i wouldn't mind getting stuck in a time loop with chris and miliotti <laughs> i love some of the twists too of just like oh wait this is what was happening the whole time or this is who this was it's yeah. just a fun one it's definitely one i think i watched it twice during the pandemic but i need to revisit it again i've watched it so many times it's, yeah it's <laughs> over for and over and over yeah well, that's a good one. All right. My second pick, it's complicated. With Meryl Streep, Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin, John Krasinski. It's got everybody. So it's a stack cast. Uh, Have you seen this one? No. Okay. Maybe it's just, well, we can't talk about that. Maybe it's just people, other people I saw in my life. Adults with relationships, not hinting at anything. <laughs> but just the idea of life being so complicated and love at a different age bracket. Because I yeah. think oftentimes it's always, you know, young beauty and young love and it's got to be someone in their 20s or 30s even if the actor's 40 this is just like no 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 they're older they're all older and how are they all kind of intertwined and intertangling all their romances so Meryl Streep is really funny in this one and she always just makes the performance better but having Alec Baldwin who's just naturally funny and has this charisma and then steve martin who's of course a comedian and there's a great pot smoking scene with the two of them anyway <laughs> it's a really fun movie where the kids become kind of the role of the parents and other rom-coms of like the voice of reason the voice of questioning the skeptical voice the what do you think you're doing and it's fun to have meryl streep be in her 50s or 60s assumed and having this existential crisis of like do i even want to date either of these men do I even yeah. want a relationship? So it's complicated, it's funny, and it's a good one to watch. Well, I'll have to add it to my list. My second pick is uh, Stardust, which stars Charlie Cox and Claire Danes. And I really I love this movie because it's, you know, it's it's kind of a beautiful fantasy movie that's just really it's kind of a classic like setup and just adventure and You've got Robert De Niro in it as kind of a drag pirate, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. But the it, kind of what I what I love in the the these kind of classical fantasy stories is that you've got this big overarching problem of like, oh, we need to find the prince or the princess, or we need to find someone to rule the kingdom. But really, the real story that's going on is that two people are falling in love, and that's kind of what I love about Stardust is that you know there is this kind of overstory of what's going on in the kingdom and there's magic involved and there's witches and they need to like, you know, the witches are trying to find ways to become immortal. And the, you know, there's kind of a, a, a plot to become a king 
but in the middle of it is just this really simple story of these two people who are falling in love while the plot happens around them. And plus the music is fantastic. The set design is fantastic. Like the writing's great. Like it's all just so good. And it's ultimately a love story. And it's, it's a love story without a lot of cynicism, which, you know, for me is saying something that had even made my list because, you know, as I've said, I'm a little cynical about how Hollywood portrays love. <laughs> well, and I didn't realize this was directed by Matthew Vaughn. Yeah. I mean, wow. All right. Pre-Daredevil Charlie Cox, narrated by Ian McKellen. I'm going to have to watch it finally. It's got Dude, my it is name a in fun it. movie. It's a fun yeah. movie. Everyone asked me, and it's got, I'm, oh my gosh, yeah, look at this cast. Henry Cavill. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a real who's who of like uh, British actors. Peter O'Toole. Okay. For the good of the Brits, I'm going to yeah. have to watch Stardust. And Robert De Niro's performance is, is really good because, you know, especially considering the year that it came out with 2007, like, yeah. especially because right now queerness and like drag culture is, is a little bit more mainstream. But back in 2007, you know, his, his character is like outwardly this, he tries to be this really masculine pirate, but behind closed doors, he's very like effeminate and is probably a little bit more, but, and ultimately that like helps to serve the plot. And so it's not like, you know, a, a, a weakness at all to the plot, like it helps the plot. And so it, you know, for 2007, this is, it's a great storytelling. All right. Stardust. Gotta go watch it. Our third pick is shared. We've already discussed yes. this. It's La La Land. What yeah. a perfect movie for Valentine's Day for a couple of cynics yeah. like us. <laughs> this was the movie that made me break up with, well, this was the movie that helped me to get over a breakup with somebody because we both saw it and I was like, oh, that movie changed me. It was so amazing. And she was like, I hated it. I hated the ending. <laughs> and I said, cool. In that case, it's time for this to be done. It was This a fun movie one. was actually, actually one of the last movies I watched with my ex before we broke up. And uh, it's not that it, not that it like created the, the energy for the breakup. It was just like, you know, it just resonated. I, I mean, it didn't create the circumstances, but like, it just was kind of circumstantial that it, I watched it like probably a month before we ended up breaking up. And I was just like, holy shit, this hurts. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> the great test of all relationships. You have to watch La La Land together. Yikes. I mean, Damien Chazelle knocked out of the park with the first musical he did i mean i guess you could call whiplash a musical but what a fantastic movie start to finish yeah now being in utah i saw it there once in the I, they always change the name whatever the amphitheater is in west west of the 15 you usana usana with a full live orchestra oh my which was gosh, great wow so it was pretty amazing to watch it that way now i tried to go see it in la live with justin Hurwitz being the actual composer of the whole film. Tickets were at like $150, and they sold out in 20 minutes. Wow. So next time it does that in Utah, though, you do it, and maybe I'll come on up there and go see it again, because it's so fun to see yeah. a live orchestra. No, I love that. I love, I mean, this is a complete tangent, but I love when movies tour with live orchestras. Like, I saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse in November with a wow. live orchestra here in Salt Lake, and it was fantastic. They had... Um, a li live it was an all-female band with a dj and they just did a phenomenal job it was so cool yeah maybe we'll well we'll have to just 
publish something about it, interview someone doing it, because I think it's so much more fun. And for those who are like, oh, I'm not into classical music, I'm like, yeah, you are. It's a, it's in every movie, and not just classical, but, you know, orchestral music, things with yeah. a composer and a director. Yeah. Either way. All right, La La Land. Perfect Valentine's Day movie. <laughs> Perfect. Well, everyone, enjoy your crowded restaurants, unnecessary amounts of chocolate, and risky texts you're going to send to those who you may or may not have ever told that you want them to be your Valentine. And I've got a couple of them lined up. Scheduled texts going out at yeah, 101 yeah. a.m. Wonderful. Well, enjoy the desert, and we will catch up next week. 